the World Trade Center towers collapsed on September 11, 2001, 13 years ago this coming Thursday. Remarkable. Most of us remember the emotions that swept over us as we watched it live in living color. I was in seminary. I was watching Sports Center, uh, and they... They just erupted. They, they interrupted the sports center to show what was happening. Then I turned over to another channel. Um, but we all remember the emotions, the fear, um, the, the, um, the sadness for the victims, uh, and the anger because of what had happened on that day 13 years ago where more than... 3,000 people died because of the collapsing of these towers. But as is typical and as is most often the case, trials often will uh, bring to the forefront uh, and produce heroes. And one of those heroes that day was a man named Rick Rascorla. Rick Rascorla was the head of security for the Morgan in, uh, Stanley investment firm in the World Trade Center. And he had been there for some time. He was, had fought in Vietnam. He was a hero in Vietnam, and now he's the head of security at Morgan Stanley, where they had 2,700 uh, members in the investment firm that uh, had their offices in the World Trade Center. And... Uh, Rick Rascorla saved all 2,700 members of this investment firm that day by courageously and calmly leading them out of the building. In fact, the only one who died from that Morgan Stanley investment firm was Rick Rascorla himself. And the reason he died is he stayed in the building looking for anyone that might have been left behind. Rick Rascorla's story didn't begin that day. You can take it all the way back at least to February the 26th, 1993. And that's when the terrorists first attacked uh, the World Trade Towers. Uh, they had these explosives detonate in the garage in the towers. And their goal, these terrorists' goal in 1993 was to destroy the towers. Uh, their goal was to cause the North Tower to implode and collapse and to fall into the South Tower in, and destroy both towers in the process. Well, they failed. Yes, they killed some and injured many, but they failed in that first attempt. But Rick Rascorlin knew they were coming back. In fact, there is a documentary that you can watch called The Man Who Predicted 9-11. He knew they were coming back, and he knew that once the garage was secure, that the only other place the towers would be vulnerable was by air. And he contemplated uh, the thought of what would happen if someone, if an airplane loaded with uh, explosives were to fly into the World Trade Towers. And he told everyone it's going to happen. In fact, he tried to get Morgan Stanley to uh, relocate across the Hudson River into New Jersey, but to no avail. But one thing he did do as the head of security is that he secured an evacuation plan 
for the entire firm. In fact, every quarter, every three months, he would require everyone in this firm to take this plan. And so they would, uh, they would have a plan, evacuation plan, and they would go out of the building. In fact, you could be in the middle of a, a meeting. You could be on a phone call. And you could be the CEO of Morgan Stanley, and you had to carry out this plan. It was very frustrating for everyone involved. A friend described him as fanatical about it. But in the end, because of his ultimate sacrifice... He saved all 2,700 members of Morgan Stanley. And as one survivor in this documentary says of him, he did not on that day think of himself at all. He thought of all of us. And we are here because of him. We are here because of him. Of course, uh, hearing this as Christians, it can't help but remind us of the cross. It can't help but remind us of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to use her words. He did not on that day think of himself at all. And we are here because of him. In fact, Romans 15.3 says he did not please himself. And we know that the cross and the, the resurrection of Jesus is the ground of our salvation. Because on the cross... He takes the judgment of God that you and I deserve. We deserve judgment. We deserve wrath because of our sin, because of our rebellion. And on the cross, Jesus took the wrath as our substitute. And then God raised him from the grave. And in the resurrection, it was God's public declaration that the debt has been paid for everyone who would believe. We know that the cross and the resurrection is the ground of our uh, salvation. But these two events don't stand alone. They are a part of a a bigger story. The greatest story. The most ultimate story. Okay? Um, They're preceded by all the prophecies and types and shadows in the Old Testament that prepare us for Messiah. They're preceded by His incarnation. Where... The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, takes on human flesh that he may obey and suffer as a man. They're preceded by his sinless life. Okay? Because if he had not taken on human flesh, he could not have lived for us. He could not have suffered for us. If he did not have a sinless life, then he would have needed a Savior himself. But the cross and the resurrection are also succeeded by his ascension. The fact that he ascends to the right hand of the Father. They're succeeded by his session. What is his session? His session is where he he rules presently. He reigns presently at the right hand of the Father. They're succeeded by Pentecost. Where he pours out the very spirit of Christ. The third person of the Trinity. That we may overcome our sin progressively. That we may have power to be witnesses. They're succeeded by his intercession where he intercedes for those he's redeemed at the right hand of the Father and they are succeeded by the second coming of Christ where he comes and consummates everything that he has inaugurated. Today, we close Luke by looking at his ascension. In short, 
without denying that Jesus' cross and resurrection is the ground of our salvation. That's what 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, among other passages, clearly indicate. It isn't an overstatement to say that His ascension saves. Christ saves us by His ascension. Unfortunately, most believers today neglect the ascension. In fact, as I was thinking about it, I've taught on it as I've taught through Ephesians in a Bible study in Nashville. But I don't think I've ever preached on the ascension. It is a grossly neglected doctrine. But Scripture clearly indicates that Jesus, by His ascension to the right hand of the Father, saves sinners. This is a saving event. As Peter will say in Acts 5.31, God exalted him at his right hand. Now, what does that mean to be exalted? That's the ascension. God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior. I love that description. As leader and savior to produce repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And so by his ascension, he saves us. And fittingly, the ascension is how Luke concludes his gospel. Now, when we began this gospel uh, so many months and years ago, um, we learned that Luke is the longest gospel, the longest book in the New Testament. Okay? It's a very significant work. But more importantly, it's the only synoptic. What is the synoptic gospels? It's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay? It's the only synoptic that calls Jesus Savior. Isn't that interesting? It's the only synoptic that calls Jesus Savior. It's the only synoptic that uses the word salvation. It's the only synoptic that uses the word redeem and redemption. And interestingly, Luke alone of the synoptics uses the word grace. He uses the word grace eight times. In fact, when he doesn't use it, he implies it. As we see in this last promise he makes to his disciples before he ascends, we see the gracious promise of the Lord Jesus, the resurrected Christ, in verse 49. Look with me. He's already said in verse 48, we saw this last time, you were witnesses of these things, the witnesses of the cross, witnesses of the resurrection. This is the Great Commission, Luke's version of the Great Commission. And he says, behold, I am sending the promise. I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Now, what is the promise? Well, for those of us that have been in the church for a while, we recognize that that promise is a person. The promise is. It is a person of the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of Christ. In fact, in Acts' account, Luke's sequel to Luke, in Acts 1, he says, And you shall be clothed with power, okay? And you shall be my witnesses. So in the context, the reason he is sending the Spirit is so that we would be witnesses, so that we would be evangelists, so that we would be missional. That's our purpose. And that's why he sends the Spirit. And I think the reason that uh, this gift, this gift of the promised Holy Spirit is not more 
important to us is because we're not missional. When you're on the front lines of mission and evangelism, you recognize how weak you are. You recognize how impotent you are, how inadequate you are, and how glorious the promise of the Holy Spirit is. Okay? You know, the other day I was running in Alabama heat. We were down there uh, for my parents' 50th anniversary. So grateful to Robert and his... The fact that we have a man like this who can who can stand up in this pulpit and actually improve on what the preacher does every week. Thank you that we have a man like that, that who's so able in the Scriptures. But I, while I was down there, I ran. I ran in the heat of the day. Heather said, why do you run in the heat of the day? Because I'm trying to prove I'm not aging, okay? And, 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 and so... At 1 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm running, and it's, it's 100. You can see the heat. How do you see heat? I saw heat. And it was just oppressive, okay? And I, it just reminded me, I, I need endurance. I, I need some energy. But if I was sitting on the couch, I wouldn't even think about those things. I only thought about it because I was running in intense heat. When you hear about the promise of the Holy Spirit, you kind of yawn at it. Unless you're serious about your sin. Unless you're serious about overcoming your indwelling sin. Unless you're serious about the gospel. Unless you're serious about evangelism. Then when you read about the promised Holy Spirit, what do you do? You celebrate. You worship. I want to take you to Galatians chapter 3. In fact, this is a, a remarkable passage where Paul talks about this promise. And in Galatians 3... He says in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So those people that have a problem with God's judgment, read this. What do you think a curse is? Uh, That's what we deserve. Christ became the curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Notice, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit. Isn't that interesting? You remember back when we studied Genesis, God blesses Abraham five times in Genesis 12 to 1 to 3. And he says, through your offspring, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless the nations. I'm going to bless your name. Five times we read about this blessing. And Paul is saying the blessing... That is promised. He comes through the Spirit. In fact, he says the Spirit is the the promise. The Spirit is the blessing. Now what's interesting, if you look down in verse 16 uh, of this passage, it says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ is the offspring of Abraham through whom the blessings will come. And Paul is saying the blessing is the promised Holy Spirit. That is remarkable. In fact, it's a hope that we have even Moses all the way back in Numbers chapter 11 speaks about this. Uh, When he prophesies, he says uh, in, in, in this particular passage, this young man comes up to speak about these who are prophesying. And, and, and even Joshua himself is kind of jealous about it. And in verse 29 of Numbers 11, Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? 
Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. And that becomes fulfilled in the Christ event when He ascends back to the Father. Of course, He's speaking these words to the eleven most directly, but certainly we have... Uh, this is an implication for all of us. And it comes 50 days after he's raised from the grave, 10 days, Pentecost comes 10 days after he ascends to the Father. And we see that it comes in the context of the Great Commission. And note the, the Trinitarian language in this passage in Luke. He is sending, Jesus is sending the promise of the Father who is the Spirit. We worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father does not become the Son who in turn becomes the Spirit. You read that, you, you we're taught that, that false doctrine in books like The Shack. In fact, the movie The Shack is coming out. Unfortunately, I wish it was the, uh, the autobiographical movie of Shaquille O'Neal. It would probably have more truth in it. But I say that because The Shack is a heresy. And it teaches that the Father... Uh, comes in the mode of the Son, who then comes in the, the mode of the Spirit. That will damn your soul if you believe that. Okay? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are simultaneous. Okay? Uh, they're not successive. The Father eternally lives. The Son eternally lives. The Spirit eternally lives. And there is one God. And there's no illustration for that. We just take it because that's what the Word of God tells us. Our God is infinite. Why should we as finite beings be able to comprehend the infinite God? But we see this Trinitarian language here. But not only do we have the promise of the the resurrected Christ, we have the blessing of the resurrected Christ. Again, note with me in verse 50. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Again, going back to Genesis. In Genesis 1, God created humankind. And we are created as the image of God. And you know what it says in Genesis 1.28? God's first recorded words to humanity. He blessed them. He blessed them. And said, be fruitful and multiply. The first words of God to humanity as the image of God was a blessing. And yet we went AWOL. We sinned against him. And in Genesis 3 to Genesis 9, you read of a five-fold curse. A curse comes on humanity because of our sin. And I say that, that that number is intentional. Because when God comes to Abraham, God is going to reverse the curse through the seed of Abraham. Which we just saw in Galatians 3.16 is Jesus. And five times God blesses Abraham. It's Moses' way of saying this five-fold curse is going to be reversed through this five-fold blessing of the seed of Abraham. And here we have Jesus upon his resurrection before he ascends to the Father, blessing his disciples. I mean, this is a glorious way for Luke to end, isn't it? It's a glorious way for him to end his gospel. Um, Luke ends the same way a worship service ends, a benediction. Jesus is giving his disciples a benediction. You see, when Jesus blesses his uh, disciples here, he is serving as the final priest. 
There's no longer a need for these high priests to go into uh, the, the temple to offer sacrifices. He is coming as the final priest. And as the final priest, he has offered the final sacrifice. And now the priest, upon offering the final sacrifice, pronounces his blessing. And the question I would pose to you today, do you recognize that every true blessing, every enduring blessing is mediated through the Son of God? Every other blessing we seek to find in this life, and we are blessing seekers. We are blessing seekers because the first words from God's mouth to humanity was a blessing. Okay, But because of our sin, we go looking for these blessings in shady places at the horizontal level. Okay, When you look for the blessing of God on the horizontal level in an unmediated way, it ends up being a curse. It's transient. It's ephemeral. It's mythological. It's not true and enduring. Every true blessing of God is mediated through the Son of God. We see that here. But do you recognize the cost for this blessing? Just days before, Jesus was experiencing everything but a blessing. He was experiencing the curse of God so that He could be the mediator of God's blessing to us. You know, in the uh, Old Testament, the blessing of the high priest followed the sacrifice for atonement. They would offer the sacrifice for sins on the day of atonement and then they would bless the people. It's very clear that's what's happening here. Jesus' uh, benediction has followed his atoning work. I love what Thomas Goodwin, he, he kind of uh, speaks on behalf of Jesus here, but he envisions what Jesus is saying. He says... I have been dead and in dying made a curse for you. Now that curse I have fully removed and my father hath acquitted me and you for it. And now I can be bold to bless you and pronounce all your sins forgiven and your persons justified. And so what we see here with the disciples and it's true for us as well. As Jesus is about to ascend To the Father, He gives them a promise and He gives them a blessing. And both this promise of the Spirit and the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ um, signals the ongoing presence of this Lord with His people today. But this is more than just the presence of a friend who's there to combat your loneliness. All right? This is the ascended reigning, ruling, king, and lord of the universe. And we see that here in the ascension of the resurrected Christ. Look with me in verse 51. Luke just kind of passes over it here. He expands on it in Acts chapter 1 in the sequel. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. This is the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Only Luke records the ascension. I don't know why, but only Luke records it, but he records it twice. He records it here at the end of his gospel, and then he records it in the sequel in Acts 
chapter 1. After Jesus' resurrection, Acts chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that he remained on the earth for 40 days. And so this is day 40 after his resurrection, okay? And, and he tells us that he led, us, led them out to Bethany and in full view he, he was lifted up into the sky. And this event is clearly designed to show the disciples that Jesus went to a place, okay? Heaven is a place, all right? Now, I don't think four-year-old kids are able to go to heaven before they die, all right? There's no evidence of that in the Bible. But heaven is a place. And the fact that Jesus had a resurrection body that was subject to special limitations, all right? His resurrection body was subject to limitations means that Jesus went somewhere when he ascended. Heaven is somewhere. Heaven is a place. And obviously we can't exactly say where heaven is, but the emphasis on the fact that Jesus went somewhere and the fact that uh, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God uh, indicates clearly that this uh, that heaven is localized. Okay, it's localized in some kind of space-time reality. It's a place, and it's a place of glory. It's a place of glory. I was sitting with Dan Williams on Friday afternoon. Dan Williams is in hospice. Um, and we were talking about heaven. And that's what he's wanting to talk about as he's laying there. And I said, you know, Dan, the word of God is inerrant and infallible, but the word of God is God speaking baby talk to us. Okay? Uh, we can know him truly through the word of God, but it's like, a, it's like an adult speaking to an infant, you know, analogously. Uh, human language cannot... Contain it cannot fully uh, explain the glories of heaven, you know. But uh, when we get there, we're going to recognize that it is it's much glorier, much much more glorious than anything we ever fathomed in our finite and fallen state. Okay. In fact, uh, here's what J.I. Packer says of the ascension. The ascension was part two, the resurrection being part one, of Jesus' return from the depths of death to the height of glory. Jesus is in glory. It's the height of glory. In fact, Luke has already predicted it in Luke 9.31. It says that Jesus was going to accomplish his departure. Jesus accomplished his departure. And the Greek word is exodon. It's where we get the word exodus. This departure, this ascension, which is actually part two of this exaltation, the resurrection being part one, it is an exodus, okay? We were in bondage. Jesus himself placed himself under bondage in the cross, and then through his own blood, he was delivered. This is what the exodus in the book of Exodus points to the ascension is Christ's exodus, okay? In fact, 
John, the gospel of John, predicts it ten times. Jesus predicts, prophesies his ascension ten times in John. The first time being John 3, verse 13, and the second time being John 20, I believe, verse 17. But John predicts the ascension ten times. The apostle Paul celebrates it. The Apostle Paul is so caught up in this reality. Ephesians chapter 1, Christ ascends, all things are placed underneath his feet. Ephesians 4, he who descended is the very one who ascended. Philippians 2, he ascends and one day every knee is going to bow. 1 Timothy 3 verse 16, one of those glorious early confessions. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit He was seen by the angels. He was proclaimed to the nations. He was believed on in the world. And he was taken up into glory. That's the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it was part of that early confession. In fact, it's found in the Apostles' Creed uh, as well. But what is the significance of Jesus' ascension? Why does it matter? I love what Augustine or Augustine, whoever you ask... It will change. Uh, there are some professors on campus who say it's Augustine and, or Augustine, and Dr. Moeller says it's Augustine. So how do I pronounce it? Well, it's according to who I'm around. <laughs> but Augustine says, unless the Savior had ascended into heaven, his nativity would have come to nothing. What is his nativity? Him coming in human flesh. And his passion would have borne no fruit for us. What is his passion? The cross. And his most holy resurrection would have been useless had he not ascended. But why? Let me give you three reasons. First of all, the resurrection or the ascension is Jesus' personal ascendancy. It's his personal ascendancy. Jesus went up to the place of power. Jesus is now on the throne at the right hand of God. By his ascension, Jesus took his place as the king over all creation until the time when all things are placed underneath his feet. Psalm 110 verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You say, well, Brian, I thought he was already king. I thought he was already Lord over all creation. Indeed, he is. But now, in his ascension and in his resurrection, he is king as God-man. He is king in a saving way. Yes, he was already sovereign over all things. Now, he is king as the saving king. He is the saving ruler over the universe. And his rule, his saving rule, is being extended to the nations through the spirit-empowered people who take that gospel to the nations. It's his personal ascendancy. In fact, we can see this anticipated in Psalm 68, a remarkable psalm. And in Psalm 68, verse 18, we could spend more time here, but for time's sake, suffice to say, verse 18, you ascended on high, leading a a, a host of captives in your train. You ascended on high. Who is the psalmist speaking of here? Well, he's speaking about the victorious king. 
And then in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that one that the psalmist is speaking of is Jesus himself. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, or verse 8, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. Jesus, in his personal ascendancy, is now king. And his reign and his rule is extending to the ends of the earth as all of his enemies are placed underneath his feet. Now that comes in this present age through the gospel. doesn't come through the sword as Allah teaches or, or Muhammad teaches about Allah. It comes through the sword of the spirit. But for those who refuse to repent and believe and bow the knee to this reigning king, one day judgment will come. Judgment will come to everyone who refuses to bow the knee to this ascended king. Secondly, Jesus' ascension means his spiritual omnipresence. The fact that he ascends to the Father assures us of his spiritual omnipresence. Maybe you don't know what the word omnipresence means. It means that Jesus is everywhere. God, through the Son, by the Spirit, is everywhere. All times, all places. And in a very covenantal way for the believer. In the heavenly sanctuary, uh, Jesus is accessible to all. He's accessible to all uh, who appeal to Him. And He is omnipotent to help. He's all-powerful to help. Anytime, any place, any need. That's Hebrews 4, verse 16. And this is one of the great mysteries, I think, of the work of the Spirit. Because Jesus told His disciples, it's better that I go away. Which is remarkable. It's better that I ascend to the Father. Because in sending to the fa- ascending to the Father, I am sending the Spirit to you. You see, in His resurrection body, Jesus can only be at one place at one time. His body is a human body, just like ours. Now, He is fully God, okay? But His, his, his uh, body is finite in that sense. And so, Jesus, the God-man, sends the Spirit... Uh, so that he can be present at all times and all places in this covenantal way. And that's why Paul would say in Ephesians 3, for instance, he says, I pray that you would be strengthened by his spirit in your inner being so that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. So by the spirit, Christ dwells. And this is the dwelling of the reigning and ruling and triumphant and victorious king. I mean, that's, that's just remarkable to me. Do you know how helpful that is to me in my own walk? It is the most glorious truth that He is present covenantally to help me overcome my own sin, to help me in my ministry. When I open up the Word of God and I interpret it the way the Spirit intends me to interpret, that is in a gospel-centered way and not a moralistic way, I can be assured that the ruling, the reigning Christ is there covenantally. His lordship is coming to bear on this situation. That is a glorious truth. And so we see, first of all, the ascension speaks to his personal ascendancy. And let me just say there, his personal ascendancy 
That's a benefit to us because Hebrews 6 says he is a forerunner on our behalf. His personal ascendancy is the first fruits of our own ascendancy. We have been raised up with Christ and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So his experience in glory is our experience in glory. And that's why John uh, would tell us, in fact, uh, Jesus is speaking in John, and this is the night before his cross, so you see what's on his mind when he says this. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, that's heaven, are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And so we have the assurance because of his personal ascendancy that his home in heaven will be our home in heaven. Of course, we also recognize that when he returns, heaven's coming to us. The new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven from God. So we have, first of all, the benefit of his personal ascendancy. Secondly, we have the benefit of his spiritual omnipresence. And then finally... We have the benefit of his heavenly ministry. I think the most helpful way to explain this is in Hebrews 9. You don't have to turn there. It should be up on the screen. I want you to see something here. This is very important. I think it's one of the most underrated passages in the Bible. In Hebrews 9, verses 24 to 28, we're going to read this together. And I want you to notice the verb appear appears three times but in three different ways. Look with me. Verse 24, For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands. That is, he's speaking there of the temple, and the, the holy of holy in the temples, in the temple, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. That's speaking of his ascension. Now notice, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Christ is appearing in the presence of God What is Jesus doing right now? He's appearing. He's appearing in the presence of God, it says, on our behalf. Verse 25, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared. Second verb, second time this word appears. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. To put away sin by the sacrifice for himself. And so Jesus appeared in his incarnation to take away our sins. He took the wrath for our sins. Okay? And then he appears in heaven for on our behalf. Okay? So we see two verbs. Now notice again uh, at the very end of that passage, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. So we have the Christ of the three appearings. In his present appearing, he's appearing to the Father on our behalf. Okay? And the reason he can do that is because he appeared to take away our sins. He accomplished his work. And we have the hope in light of those two appearings that he is going to appear and return and consummate everything he has begun. And this means in part this present appearing... That when we pray, it matters. He is the high priest and he takes our prayers and he offers them to the Father as our mediator. Which means that tragically we do not have to do 
what many do today. They pay, they pay large amounts of money to email their request in so that their prayer request can be broadcast at the Welling Wall in Jerusalem or in other holy places. That's just utterly tragic. We don't have to do that. We know that when we pray in Jesus' name, through Jesus, on the, the, the finished, on the basis of His finished work, that our prayers are heard by the Father. If you believe that, you would pray more. If you believe that, you would probably spend more time in prayer than you do anything else. But it's true. It's absolutely the case. But as important as that is, his intercessory ministry um, is more uh, than just his uh, taking our request to the Father. His intercessory ministry also means intervention on our behalf. He appears to the Father on our behalf. He intervenes in our interest from the throne. And the disciples came to understand that. And whenever a truth of Jesus' saving work has captured God's people's minds and hearts and affections, what do they do? They worship. And that's how we close Luke. Look with me. The worship of the resurrected Christ in light of what Jesus has promised, in light of the blessing, in light of His own ascension. We close out the gospel of Luke. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple pleasing God or blessing God. Luke began with the temple. He closes in the temple. He began with songs. We have those songs of, of Zechariah and Anna and the angels and Mary and Elizabeth. He ends with songs. He ends with praises. And I think it's telling that the last verse in Luke ends in worship. Now, Luke, Luke has a sequel. It's called Acts. And Acts picks up with worship and then it proceeds into witness. True worship always issues into witness. But for our sake here, it ends in worship. Why is Luke writing to Theophilus? So that Theophilus would have certainty concerning the things he's been taught. Theophilus is likely a convert in the Roman government. And in the Roman government, only Caesar is Lord. Kaiser Kyrios. If you bow the knee to any other Lord, you lose your head. Now you have this man named Theophilus who's likely been converted. He's called Most Excellent Theophilus, which is a term to describe uh, governmental officials. And Luke is saying, he's worthy. He is worthy to die for. He's worthy to lose your career over. I'm writing you so that you would have uncertainty concerning the things you've been taught. Why? So Theophilus would worship. And Luke ends with worship. And that's how he wants us to respond to the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And that's my prayer for Fisherville Church. That's my prayer for everyone here. If you're not worshiping the living God through Jesus Christ, that today would be that day that you repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Christ has accomplished His mission. 
He's taken away sins. He's been raised from the grave for our pardon. And He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And He's coming again to judge the world. And in fact, the Lord's Supper is a picture of that judgment. A judgment through substitution. That's what 